I like my emphasis on that scripture better. <laughs> I think I've, I've mentioned this. Acts is one of my favorite books to talk about because God did so much through his people. You know? And he established his church. But today I want to talk to you about witnessing miracles. Witnessing miracles. Okay, I got to share a story. I got a short message because it's potluck Sunday, but now we're already going off track. Man. Um, John Maxwell told this story once. He was pastoring in a, in a small church in Indiana. And they had this one gentleman that they had prayed for over and over and over again because uh, not only was he a problem in the family, but he was making trouble in the church. And they just prayed for him for a very long time. Well, finally, one, one Sunday, and I don't remember why he came to church. I'm presuming it was probably potluck because that's when we can get everybody into church who won't normally come, right? Anyway, he heard the message and he got saved. Folks, that in itself was a miracle because only God can draw someone in and save them. And to draw someone like that that was that difficult and was that problematic is a miracle. Another part of the story is that that night they were having baptisms. Well, he wanted to be baptized right away. Well, I mean, when God gets a hold of your heart in its entirety, he changes everything about you. And I've seen him change people instantaneously. But anyway, they were getting, he was getting ready to baptize him. And, you know, in, in the normal custom, he, he raised his right hand and, and he said, in the name of the Father and the Son and the, the Holy Spirit. Well, when he raised his hand up, that guy gave him a high five. Bow! <laughs> he was excited. We need to get excited. Because God does a miracle in our lives every single day. When you got up this morning, either it was just before or just after the sun came up, that's a miracle. So miracles around us, they're not just in the book of Acts, they're here. I got out of bed and walked. That's a miracle because I'm tired. It's been a long week. Paul walked everywhere. We, we read in our text today that we know that Paul was in, uh, in Ephesus, and he was on his third missionary journey. You already heard that. You probably know more about the message now after that story than you're going to know through the whole thing I'm going to talk about, but bear with me and I'll catch up. But unlike his normal strategy of only talking for three weeks in the synagogue, here he talked for three months. For three months he spoke boldly. And then, of course, we know that there were some who became hardened and they didn't believe, and, and, and they began to slander the way. And, and of course, we know that the word the way, as, was, as we talked about earlier, uh, was an early name for the followers of Jesus, and probably from Jesus' declaration in John chapter 14, verse 6. So Paul leaves the synagogue, and he takes the Jewish believers with him. Then he holds daily discussions at the lecture hall. That goes on for two years. Two years. Both Jews and Greeks from all over the province of Asia 
which is modern Turkey, hear the gospel. That's really all I need to talk about today. It's hearing the gospel. But what I want us to focus on today is that the rest of chapter 19 actually reveals two requirements for witnessing miracles. So let's look at them. Let me see if I can get through it. What's the first one? I love this. Activate the authority of the gospel. Activate the authority of the gospel. See, during Paul's ministry at Ephesus, incredible things happen that are not talked about in his previous missionary tours. God does unusual miracles through Paul. Look at verse 12 with me. Acts chapter 19, verse 12. I know Perry read it for us. It says, during, excuse me, so that even, now we're we're leading up to it, 19 verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. That's phenomenal. The only thing that comes off of me is sweat. You know? But God needed to confirm his prophet. His prophet. So why in Ephesus? Well, that answer is actually pretty, pretty clear because God enabled Paul's platform there, if you will, to, for the unusual miracles because Ephesus was the center for the occult. And Paul was demonstrating God's power right in the middle of Satan's territory. You see, the book of Acts is a time of great transition for the church. It covers about 30 years. About 30 years. From the ascension of Christ to Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, there is no New Testament to guide nude believers or to validate God's messengers at this time. That's why the miracles. Therefore, God gives the apostles validating powers, and and those are actually lost as the New Testament uh, nears its completion. We know that because Paul actually gave advice to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, that reveals he no longer has healing powers. 1 Timothy 5, 23 says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, it's, it's apparent that Timothy practiced total abstinence from alcohol to avoid any possibility of drunkenness. However, in Paul's day, water was often of very poor quality and contributed to illnesses. And Paul's counsel here is to use wine for its medicinal value. Did you notice that Paul doesn't send an apron or handkerchief to heal Timothy? Because that's past. That's past. Further evidence of Paul's healing powers were temporary was in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. He says, Erastus stayed at Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. If he needed to be able to heal, he would have done so. Now, let me back up just a second, and I'm going to throw something in I hadn't planned on, which is normal. God is still in the healing business, folks. Okay? 
He just doesn't have to demonstrate it through his prophets anymore because the word is what reveals whether the prophet is truth or not. God's still in the healing business. We see it all the time. I cannot remember the number of people in the top left-hand side of our prayer thing that have been healed from cancer and other, other things going on in their life. You know, God's still in the healing business. Let me tell you something right here. If you're here this morning and you have something that you know medicine can't take care of, that you know that you need a touch from God, then you can get it. All you have to do is ask him. I'm not going to tell you, come up here and we'll lay hands on you. I got no power. God has power. God's got all the power. And if there's something in your life that needs to be cleaned up and needs to be straightened up, all you got to do is ask him. We'll be happy to pray with you about it. But healing is dependent on the faith of the one being healed, not on the one that's praying with you. You see, Paul couldn't heal Trophimus when he left him at Miletus sick because his ability to perform miracles was temporary, lasting only until the purpose of validating him as God's messenger was fulfilled. So as a result of Paul's reputation for performing miracles in the name of Jesus, some Jews traveled from town to town casting out evil spirits. They try to use the name of the Lord Jesus to cast out demons. And here we are with the seven sons of Siva. The seven sons of Siva. You guys are never going to forget that, are you? Seven sons of Siva. A leading priest, they're trying to exercise an evil spirit. And then the spirit replies that he knows Jesus. Let me share something. That word know to us is, okay, he knows him. The word know in the Greek suggests an intimate knowledge. That spirit intimately knows Jesus. And he's heard of Paul. But he said, who are you losers? Emphasis mine. But they were. Verse 16, then the possessed man went berserk. I love the message in there. That's why I threw it in there. Went berserk, jumped the exorcist, beat them up, tore off their clothes, naked and bloody. They got away as best they could. Folks, the misuse of the name of the Lord Jesus causes fear in Ephesus and among both Jews and Greeks. The misuse of the name of the Lord Jesus should strike fear into all of us. Because of all of it going on, the name of the Lord Jesus is magnified. Many who uh, become believers confess their sinful practice, and many that have been practicing sorcery uh, bring their incantation books and burn them publicly. You just say, that's great. They brought their little books and they burned them up. Can I share a little something about those books? I'm going to anyway, just listen. Those books are actually valued at that time at 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver. 
A silver coin, one piece of silver, was a common laborer's pay for one day work. So the books are worth 50,000 days wages. 50,000 days wages. That's several million dollars in today's cost. And they burned them. Jesus took over and they burned their occult books. Look, really struggling at this moment, and I'm going to have to follow this because I, I don't have a choice. Some of you right now are struggling with something you need to turn over. You need to turn it over. I don't know what it is. I just know that I have a, I can't finish. <laughs> There's something you need to turn over. I don't know who and I don't know why. I just know that in my spirit right now, I'm being told there's something you need to turn over to Jesus and burn it. Just get rid of it. I don't know what it is. You do. If you don't hear anything else I say the rest of this service, that's okay. Just talk to God. Turn it over. If you need to come up front and talk about it, we will. I don't care. But I'm just telling you, somebody needs to. And I don't know who it is. I just know that. Fifty thousand days wages. They burn them. Today we would call that an act of separation. An act of separation. Now this separation was not enforced by the church in any legal way, any legalistic way. What they did, we find no mention of it whatsoever by Paul or anyone else. These believers decided on their own, prompted by the way they understood God's will for their lives. They got rid of something worth 50,000 days wages. And I'm struggling just trying not to turn on the news first thing in the morning. That's where I'm at right now. I can't do 50,000 days wages, but I can do that. And spend, spend more time just listening to him. See, for Christians, separation from sin ought to be an obvious normal of behavior. An obvious normal of behavior. Ephesus is also the kingdom of Diana. And truth has invaded the kingdom of Diana and is winning the battle. In fact, we read in verse 20 that the word of the Lord continues to flourish and prevail. Okay, what's the second thing we need to do to witness a miracle? We've, got, we've already activated the authority of the gospel. The second thing is we need to give God time to work. I'm the most impatient person there is. I get it. If I want something tomorrow, I order it tomorrow. I don't want, if I order it today, I want it now. I'm waiting for those um, drone drops from Amazon, you know? Uh, I'd punch the button. Yeah, yeah, and then we're talking. We're talking. So here's Paul. Uh, he is 
identified that his ministry in Ephesus is almost finished. He's coming to a close, and, and he begins to make plans to go to Macedonia, Achaia, and Jerusalem, and then on to Rome, prompting him to send his associates, Timothy and Erastus, uh, to Macedonia to prepare for his later arrival. Now, apparently, Paul delays his own travel plans to stay in Ephesus to write the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. But before Paul's departure, well, look with me at Acts 19, verse 23. Acts 19, verse 23, New Living Translation says, about that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. Once again, we have a problem. The trouble begins with this guy named Demetrius. He's a silversmith. He has a very large business. His business is making silver shrines to Diana, or other, otherwise known as Artemis. She is the goddess of fertility who is represented by the multiple-breasted figure. Now, this depiction is a, a, uh, uh, what is a depiction of her temple. Uh, her temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet high, and it's surrounded by 127 Greek columns of white marble. It's considered to be one of the most beautiful buildings of the ancient world. Now the festivals of Diana. Festivals of Diana involve orgies and carousing and the key source of revenue for Ephesus. However, Believers of the way will no longer buy the silver images of the goddess. This causes Demetrius great distress. He calls together all the others that are employed in similar trades. Tells them that their wealth is in jeopardy because Paul is persuading people that handmade gods are not really gods. Imagine that. Demetrius also tells them their craft will be discredited and their adored goddess Diana despised. They hear about this and they're filled with rage. Acts 19, verse 28. Look there with me. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! This action literally throws the city into chaos. The crowd rushes to the amphitheater and they drag along with them Gaius and, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> um, Aristarchus, who are Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wants to go in also, but the believers won't allow him. Some of the officials of the province who are Paul's friends send him word and plead with him not to risk his life by going into the amphitheater, verses 29 through 31. Now Luke makes it clear here that the amount of confusion by writing that they are shouting different things so most of the crowd does not know why they've come together. Doesn't that sound normal? You ever watched a riot on TV? Some of them are actually demonstrating for a purpose, the rest are just looting stores.
So the Jews in the crowd, they push Alexander to the front to begin to explain the situation. He motions for silence and he tries to speak. But as soon as they realize that he's a Jew, well, look at verse 34 with me, Acts 19, verse 34. When they recognized that Alexander was a Jew, everyone started to shout in unison, Artemis of the Ephesians is great. They kept doing this for about two hours. Finally, the city clerk, chief executive officer, or mayor of the city, he held one of those titles, or maybe all, I don't know. He's responsible for law and order. He calms the mob. He tells the crowd, uh, Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, the image that fell from heaven. He tells them that these are undeniable facts and that they should keep calm and do not do anything rash. He tells them Paul's associates have not stolen anything and are not blasphemers of their goddess. See, robbing temples and blaspheming other gods were common accusations that Gentiles made against Jews and Christians during that period of time. Now, it is true that Paul and his associates did not directly denounce Artemis. However, in his letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, 1 Corinthians, that he wrote from Ephesus, he writes, there is only one God and Father. In fact, look with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. It says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom for all things and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. One God who created everything, and we live for him. The mayor reminds Demetrius and the craftsmen that if they have a case against Paul and his associates, the courts are in session. He tells them to take their case to the courts because it must be decided legally. Now see, the people know that Rome will not tolerate riots. And if the news of this riot reaches Rome, the city of Ephesus will be punished greatly. Therefore, the mayor reminds them that they run the risk of being charged with rioting, and then he dismisses the assembly, verses 40 and 41. See, God completely took care of the crowd without Paul's intervention. All he had to do was give God time to work. Even though Paul thought it was necessary for him to risk his life to calm the crowd and secure the release of his associates. You see, we should never get ahead of God in problem solving. I find so many people when they're struggling say, well, I guess I'll just have to pray. I said, I think I need to write a little note for you to pin on your forehead. First thing, pray. First thing, pray. Give God time to work. Don't get ahead of him in problem solving because chances are you're going to mess it up. In fact, if we get ahead of God in solving a problem, we have to remember what we read in Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. We're supposed to run to him. How do we do that? We pray. We pray. 
So there's two things we need to do, folks, to witness a miracle. We need to activate the authority of the gospel. When Jesus works, things change. And then we have to give God time to work. Because the greatest miracle of all is seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. That's the greatest miracle. When we were at camp this last summer, I had one young gentleman come up to me. I don't, he was in high, junior high, high school, I don't know. And he said, I'm not sure that I'm saved because I didn't have the great experience like my mom and grandma had. And I got to explain to him that God changes every person individually, not as a group, and that your experience and mine are not necessarily going to be the same. But it's still the same God that makes the change. Sometimes we don't need to have the huge miracle in our life to believe God changed us. Sometimes we just need the still small voice that says, I love you. But the greatest miracle is the changed life. When someone finally bends their knee and says, you're right, I accept you as my Lord and as my Savior. That's the greatest miracle. Have you experienced that miracle? Have you experienced that miracle in your life? Now you might be here, you might be, teenager, 20 years old, 30 years old, and say, well, I was baptized. I didn't ask you that. I said, have you experienced the miracle of your changed life by accepting the Lord? Baptism has nothing to do with it. If you haven't, let me introduce you to who holds tomorrow. His name's Jesus, and he died for you. But more than that, he rose out of the ground. Amen? Yeah. Pray with me, if you will, please. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for loving us in a way that only you could. And we know, Father, that as Paul wrote, as you directed his, through his spirit to tell us these wonderful things that have happened, that as Luke wrote in the book of Acts, how the, what happened in the life of the people in Ephesus right in the core of the occult of, of Satan, that you, they burn their books that are valued in more money than most of us will ever know or see. And that can only happen through the power of the gospel. And I just pray right now, Father, that you would activate the authority of your gospel in our lives, and we will give you time to work. For I know that you are Omniscient, You know everything. You all know all about our lives. You know what we did this morning. You know what we did at our birth. You know what we've done all our life. And you're standing ready and willing to forgive us of all of that. 
And I just pray right now, Father, that if there is someone here this morning who has not accepted this gift, it has not given their life to your son, that they'll do it before they leave here today. We ask this in your son's wonderful name. Amen.